Welcome to Sustain What, a series of conversations seeking solutions where complexity and consequence collide. That's basically on just about every sustainability frontier, from shaping a safer relationship with Earth's climate to building more civil online relationships with each other. As we say here in the Communication Initiative of the Columbia Climate School, the word sustainability has no meaning on its own. The first step towards success is to ask, sustain what, how, and for whom? This program contains audio highlights from hundreds of video webcasts, which you can explore on your own at j.mp slash sustainwhatlive. I'm Dale Willman, Associate Director of Columbia's Initiative on Communication and Sustainability. The webcast was created and is hosted most of the time by Andy Revkin, the longtime environmental journalist, sometime songwriter, and founding director of the initiative. Read his related dispatches at revkin.bulletin.com. And now, sustain what? Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending on where you are on this fast-forward planet which as I do every one of these shows, I have to state is still wrapped in a pandemic. Um, it's hard to believe for those of us in the United States that this uh, process of nail of getting this virus under control is still in the earliest stages. Uh, there are still 7 billion people with a B, 7 billion people on this planet who have not had even one shot yet. Um, there are countries where healthcare workers uh, are still largely unvaccinated it, you know, in the United States, there are big issues still with gaps, um, uh, but but we've come so far that it's hopeful that we can at least stanch this here. Uh, going forward, though, tons of work to do, but there's also an infodemic, which I've been running shows on for um, ever since the beginning. Uh, there's a polariz polarization, there's hatred. Uh, there are platforms that the web itself I was so excited about 10, 15 years ago when I started my blog at the New York Times as a great platform for connectedness and solutions seeking. And it all too, all too often seems to be focused on dividing us, distracting us, taking us where we don't really want to go. Um, so today's discussion is about that. It's how, how do you have pathways to impact in these perilously polarized times? And Peter, Peter Coleman is here too. He's just coming in from another Zoom room as far as I... Peter, uh, you know, Amanda was just watching you on another session. So, so welcome. I'm glad you could make it. And uh, thank you. Uh, so again, uh, today uh, I have here um, a philosopher, a psychologist, a journalist, and a singer who I, I see being on related missions. The Venn diagrams, are, there's, there's a lot of overlap, but very different sets of skills and, and uh, orientations toward how do we foster a better conversation get constructive progress amid so many factors that seem to cut in the other direction. And, uh, uh, and, and this is all, of course, inflamed by the pandemic. We had a presidency, four years of which just seemed to crest in the opposite direction of having cogent and connected cooperative discussions as opposed to um, uh, just looking for the fight. It's a compound calamity, really. So today we have Peter Coleman, professor of psychology and education at Columbia University. He'll discuss lessons from his new book, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. He has uh, many appointments at Columbia and much experience beyond just uh, psych psychology. 
He runs the Difficult Conversations Laboratory here as well. Many lessons there. I think we need a lot more of those. When I got to Columbia, that was I was so excited to, to learn there is such a thing. Amanda Ripley has written extensively about it. So Peter's going to talk about the way out. Reggie Harris is uh, an old friend, a longtime folk singer and songwriter, storyteller and educator, uh, and a true human being with a capital H, capital B, who uh, has done spectacular work trying, trying to build racial understanding to cross divides as he sees them, confronts them on the road, even in his home region of New York State, upstate New York, which is very conservative. And um, it's great to have you here, Reggie. You have a new album out on solid ground. Some of that music emerged this past year and some of it grows further back. It's wonderful to see you again with your healing hand. And sorry. No, I was just going to say thank you. It's yeah. great to be here and it's a, it's a great forum to be part of. So thank you for inviting thank you. me. And Andy Norman uh, is the author of the book, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. So you can see why I thought that there should be a bit of a conclave here. Uh, his work draws on deeply in philosophy, but also in science and, and the, uh, you know, what are the capacities we can build in ourselves to help navigate these these times, inclu including the technologies around us that, again, could, could facilitate better outcomes, but don't seem to really do that quite often. So it's great to have you here too. And I was saying to Andy Norman that I got focused on your work through my son watching your great uh, conversation with Joe Rogan. <laughs> so you're willing to go wherever, the, wherever one needs to go to uh, foster this kind of uh, progress. I, I wanted to start by um, uh, asking a couple of framing questions, um, but I wanted to start by showing one thing too um, that I think can set us off on the path toward uh, where we're going. Uh, hold on. So on Twitter recently, some of you probably have seen this, there was a post by Rex Chapman saying, Twitter versus real life. And there's two dogs at a fence and anyone who has a dog knows about what dogs tend to do. They're around other dogs when there's a fence. But watch here for one second. This just takes 30 seconds. Hopefully, uh, whoops. So the fence opens and they're like, oh, hi. <laughs> the fence closes and they're back at it. <laughs> The fence, the fence opens and they're like, oh, hi. <laughs> so what this says to me, it, it's good news, bad news, right? <laughs> it says, you know, we, we are 99% of our DNA is probably in a dog and, and vice versa. We, we, we are creatures of habit, literally. Some of that's ingrained in how, our biology. Some of it is um, learned. And I guess the, the good news is, and as you all seem to be, you know, exploring is that there's practices or behavior, but we have the capacity, at least in theory, to step back from our own sense that the gate is closed, it's time to fight. And so what do we do to actualize that? And maybe we'll start with, um, with, with Andy. Uh, and thanks for being here for uh, Carnegie Mellon University. I may not have mentioned uh, 
place where I know some great people like Granger Morgan and uh, Costa Samaras, who are more in the technology and science ends of things. But it's wonderful to have you here. So what do we do to avoid being like those dogs and just reflexively getting into one mode or another? Oh, you're, you're, uh, um, sorry, I've done. Yeah, That's sorry. So, so when we, uh, when you talk about the conversational analog of what those dogs were doing when they were barking ferociously at each other, you know, we're talking about sort of polarized political discourse or online flame wars. Um, it turns out that what's happening there in many cases is that mental immune systems are becoming inflamed and and causing us to treat each other's uh, contributions to, to dialogue as threats. So in the same way that your body's immune system responds to threats by attacking what it perceives to be dangerous microbes, your mind's immune system can mobilize to attack information that it views as threatening. Um, and so there's now about 60 years of research that indicates that minds have immune systems just as bodies do, and that they can go haywire and actually not serve us well. They can attack good information and defend um, dysfunctional beliefs. And if you don't learn how to use your mind's immune system correctly, um, a lot of times it will lead the conversations you're a part of to escalate in ways that damage your relationships and even damage your own mind. And and there's biological elements there too. Well, it's sort of a mix of biology, I assume, and um, and psychology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Peter is the psychologist in the room. When you see that video and you think about your goals with uh, uh, the way out. Um, how big a challenge does this feel like? It, to me, it feels, I, I won't say insurmountable, but everything seems aligned in the worst possible way. Social media, politics. Uh, so how do you wake up in the morning and get going with your manifesto? <laughs> um, so when I saw this, I hadn't seen this uh, video before. Um, th so the first thing that came to mind is, is you know, don't build the wall. <laughs> right that seems to fly in the face of that logic but it also reminded me you know there's there's um really interesting research on chimps uh, chimpanzees and conflict and reconciliation processes and um uh there's decades of research on this and and one of the things that they find with chimpan groups of chimpanzees is that the closer their relationships, the more that they're sort of in, intimately tied and they have close bonds with their group, um, the more intensely they fight. And if they, um, and they're, they're disinclined to fight with chimps that they don't know well, right? So it is like when you're, 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 you're basically trying to correct problems within the group and you know the group can tolerate it, right? And so the closer they are, the more they fight. But if they're distant or a stranger comes in, they're very disinclined to attack because it's unpredictable. They don't know and it's not worth it, right? So there, there's something very basic, I think, that we're seeing with these dogs and the fence and understanding what the fence means and understanding what the absence of the fence means, right? It is this like protective barrier. But I'm not sure if I'm ask, answering your question about what gets me up in the morning. 
um, you know, this pattern that we're on, this 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 pattern of, of what I call toxic polarization, which is has a 50 plus year trajectory of growing uh, um, enmity, hostility, a feeling of contempt for the other side. So there's, you know, affective components, there's structural components, in fact, that we're segregating, physically moving away, you know, reds are moving towards reds and blues are moving towards blues. And that's happening not only in rural or, you know, from rural to urban, but it's happening within cities. The Times has done a couple of pieces on this recently, looking just right. at neighborhoods. You can, there's a recent piece where you can put your zip code in and it tells you the kind of bubble you live in, right? And right. so we're physically moving away from each other and we're virtually being sorted away from each other um, on, on, inter on the internet. And so there is this kind of distance that's happening. So there are those kinds of structural things that are happening, but there are many trends that are highly concerning in this kind of path of toxic polarization. The important thing to recognize though, is that A, it's a highly complex set of issues, set of problems. It's not one thing. It's not that we just have moral differences or attitude differences on the issues or, or even that we, you know, there are folks on the other side that we don't like. It's how those things, as you suggest, align. Um, and that's the, the bad news is that those kinds of complex patterns are really hard to change. But what's interesting about how they do change are a couple of things. One is they tend to change when uh, a critical mass is miserable, right? They're sick of the status quo and the dysfunction and they're frustrated and they really want, you know, the, the, the middle, what they call the exhausted middle majority. There's a group called More in Common that studies polarization around the world, and they study America, and they've found that upwards of, you know, 90% of Americans are just fed up with this, and they really want something else. So there is a kind of, uh, you know, fertile soil for motives for people to choose something else. The middle, the, the more moderate middle tends to disengage in times like this, because they feel like the, the discourse is nuts and politics is, you know, just out of control. So one of the things we need to do is, is re-engage the middle and, 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 in, and encourage them to sort of take back the democracy and take back the discourse. I read recently that 80% uh, of the content on Twitter is put out by 10% of the participants. So they're controlling the story, they're framing the story, and they're you know controlling the discourse. And we need to flip that, right? We need to have people in the middle uh, re-engage. But I guess what I was going to say in terms of what's, what I think is promising is when you have a complex system of elements that align like this and are pulling us together, sorry, pulling us apart, what's promising in that is that A, you know, instability like the time we live in can help shake that up, but, but B, there are a lot of ways to do it. And we don't really know what will work. It could be some simple things, some small things that are done at a governmental level, by the media, you know, like the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News and, you know, more right-wing media uh, to the tune of billions of dollars. It's one thing, but it could make a big difference in terms of, you know, putting out propaganda yeah. and putting out lies. So there can be small things like that that can have an inordinate effect over time in changing the directions. So, you know, one of the things, I mean, FDR knew that um, in the Great Depression, he knew that 
what was happening was way too complicated. There were multiple things happening. There were climate problems and there were economic problems and they really just didn't understand it. So they said, let's, he said, let's do a thousand things. <laughs> you know, let's put a lot mm -hmm. of things out there and see what starts to stick and work. And I do think that that's what is happening more and more in this country. What has happened really, really, particularly since January 6th, but even over the last couple of years, is that many of the international peace building groups, in fact, are pivoting. And they're saying, we got to come back home and we got to do what we know what to do here, right? right. <clears throat> There's a group um, uh, run by Neil and Parker at Princeton called the Bridging Divides Initiative. And it's um, what they do is they map the community-based organizations around the country and where they are. And to date, there's a count of something like 7,000 groups that are operating in almost every county in America to uh, you know, bridge the divi divides. That's happening at the county level. It's happening in politics. There's a really interesting, you know, not well-known uh, committee in Congress today called the Select Committee for the Modernization of Congress. And they put these things together every 20 years or so when Congress has just gotten so dysfunctional. And they started this about a year ago. And it's a completely bipartisan group. It's run by Derek Kilmer, who's a Democrat. And it's run by and co-chaired by uh, William Timmons, who's a South Carolina um, Republican. They split the budget. They always meet together. And they've put out something like 98 uh, recommendations about how to change Congress and, and what are the structures that they need to do to bring the temperature down in Congress and to get them back into a more regional, re, uh, reasonable place. And the recommendations aren't rocket science. They too are small nudges. So like one is that in the first on the first day of a new Congress, when the freshman class comes in, what do they do? Well, they put them on a blue bus and a red bus and they drive them in different directions, you know? So their first recommendation was don't do that. <laughs> you know, don't, don't start like that because that begins a process of politics is war. And why would you do that? Right. So they've listed these things. They've gotten extended for two years now. So it's going to be a th a, at least a three year committee um, because they're smart and effective. And they're they're really modeling in the belly of the beast. Right. Congress that was just, you know, attacked on January 6th. There is a group for a year and a half now that have been working to reform Congress effectively, successfully, but kind of quietly under the radar. So the good news that wakes me up in the morning is that there are 7,000 community-based groups doing this work. And there are groups in the media. Uh, Amanda may, uh, uh, may talk about um, uh, solutions journalism and her, her piece on complicating the narrative. But there's folks in journalism, there's folks in politics, there's folks in, in government. You know, There are important things happening everywhere. And I think that's what is hopeful to me. Initially, these might start to bring the temperature down and reverse the tide. And right now is an ideal time for that to happen. That's so cool. And I guess um, one of the very important questions here always is scale. But what you're talking about is uh, can have that through if we have better communication uh, about some of these things that are going on. So, well, so yeah, it's yes. Sometimes it's scale, but sometimes it is an intervention at the right time in the right place, right? And that's how, like you know, with epidemics, you know mm -hmm. that you want to get. Do you have an intervention at the right time, right place? If it gets, uh, you know, too far down the road, you're in major trouble, which we all have just learned, right? 
So the same is true with changing these kinds of long-term patterns. Small initiatives can have outsized effects if they're done at the right time. And part of what I keep saying is now is the right time you know, because we're miserable and destabilized. And so it's a good time to really introduce important course corrections and we don't know what will have an effect. We'll circle back to Andy on a couple of those points in a minute, but let's uh, we'll get now to to Amanda too. So Amanda, you've been on a journalistic quest for years now, at least for maybe longer, uh, re reporting this question. I, I guess that's in the book that you've done is essentially a, a distillation of lessons learned and examples. So what, when you hear what Peter was saying and, and what Andy have said so far, you know, how does this resonate with your findings? I don't know if you put yourself in the category of people blowing trumpets and offering a path or, or, or are you still more in reporter mode? Um, well, I mean, I think those lines have gotten a bit blurred, uh, but, <laughs> uh, which sometimes is uncomfortable, but uh, probably this is the right time to Peter's point <laughs> to blur those lines Right, good in point. some cases, not all. Um, I've, I've learned a ton from, from Peter's work and from his lab and uh, have tried to, to share that with as many journalists as possible. Um, and it is surprising to me how many are interested. Putting, putting some of this into action is hard, especially if you don't have buy-in at the top of an organization, right? But uh, I do think, you know, one thing that comes to mind as we're talking is one way that I've found really helpful to learn about conflict is to look at look at smaller and sometimes more extreme cases and learn from uh, from what has happened there. So in the book, I follow a former gang leader named Curtis Toller who was locked in a sort of vendetta with a rival gang in Chicago for many years. Um, he was a leader of the Black Peacestone Nation gang on the south side of Chicago and in a rivalry with uh, the Gangster Disciples, which was a rivalry that actually predated his uh, arrival on the scene, as many conflicts do. Um, but there was a particularly tragic killing that to which he attributed he blamed the Gangster Disciples for that, which sort of kicked off this very long vendetta. Um, anyway, he has since, many things happened, but he has since come to realize that a lot of the story he was telling himself about that conflict was not true. And this is often the case in, in high conflicts, right? Um, and it's a, it's a very destabilizing feeling to, to reckon with that. And to his credit, he has not only accepted it, but made a lot of risky changes in his own life, including um, leaving that conflict. And he now works with Chicago Cred to help other young men out of conflict much sooner than he was able to get out. Um, but one of the things they do, speaking of the dogs and social media and, and all the conflict that we have on social media and in politics, one of the things that they do that I, I think a lot about right now is that uh, because most of the violent conflict among uh, young men and women in Chicago today starts on social media. So they spend a lot of time monitoring social media posts, trying to get things taken down that are offensive, disrespectful, humiliating before they cause uh, a revenge act. And it's an inefficient and heartbreaking process to do it that way, right? Um, yeah. but it is the stopgap measure. 
And so they have a lot of relationships with people in these organizations so that they can get things taken down. But underlying all of this are these non-aggression packs that they get, they work to get these organizations to sign uh, or to agree to. And they're pretty modest in their goals, but they're things like, you know, we won't post humiliating, disrespectful content about uh, deceased members of the rival organization online. We won't go on this block. We won't shoot at people who are going to church stuff like sort of basic things that are yeah. that they all agree to right and then those non-aggression packs always get violated right just like any peace treaty and that's something that i hadn't understood going into this research but it's almost like a, a misnomer peace treaty right um but what it does do which is really cool is it creates a mechanism a process to slow down the conflict the sort of negative spirals we get into in, in violent conflict in particular, so that there is a, a slight pause, which is sometimes, to Peter's point, all you need for a, a somewhat small intervention to make a big difference. So just to give you an example, I talk in the book about a case where, a, um, you know, the Curtis and his colleagues at Chicago Cred noticed about early in one morning that uh, someone had posted something on Facebook. It was a picture of himself uh, under a street sign on a block he wasn't supposed to be on with a weapon and given, uh, you know, sort of bragging that he was there where he wasn't supposed to be uh, on a rival gang's territory. And given the individual involved and the location and because they understood these relationships and the conflict, they knew this was a very high risk threat. So immediately everybody sort of sprang into action, reached out to someone who knew someone at the rival gang who was trusted by the rival organization and said, just wait for us. And so they came out to them before they had taken action, which they were prepared to do. But they didn't, they don't feel it as a choice. Like they had to do something about this humiliation, right? And so they, they did do that. And within two hours, they had the post taken down mm -hmm. and no one was, no one was shot that day. Um, so the non-aggression pact was renewed. Right. So it just created a mechanism and a process to slow down the conflict. And if you can get enough days in a row where no one gets shot, you can build on that. Right. And, yeah. and seize those opportunities. So when I talk to Curtis and other people in Chicago about this, it's really striking to me how, you know, we are asking young men with a, most of whom have really, really intense histories of trauma and violence and uh, in many cases addiction and mental health issues. We are asking them to agree to these terms and they often are yeah. showing great self-discipline and trust and taking risks to their own lives. And we can't, I mean, we can't get Congress to do this. Like it just feels like we ask people in violent conflict to do things that my friends who are very activist politically would never consider doing with their opponents. And it's kind of amazing, you know, when you put it in that context, the things we ask people to do in conflict zones are, are really um, quite heroic in some ways in that context, right? So I would love to see I'm aware of that committee in Congress. I would love to see a non-aggression pact on social media for members of Congress and their staff. I would love to see what they came up with. What would be the terms, you know? 
And if we can't ask them to do that, then how can we ask these young men in Chicago to do that? Wow. That's a pretty powerful uh, call right there. Really cool. Uh, you know, um, Reggie, you've been um, on the street in town parks in your family history, which we've had on the show before. Actually, Amanda was on that show where you grew up understanding over time that you were descendant of a slaveholder, Wickham, whose statue was torn down last year. And you, you found ways to reconcile to, to some certain extent with members of that family, you know, convene with them. So you've lived this experience in many uh, ways, not just through singing songs about it. And uh, that stuff comes out in your songs. So what, what, do you, what comes to mind for you, uh, you know, from your vantage point, roaming the country as a musician and storyteller, um, hearing, you know, some of these ideas? Well, these these ideas are so powerful, um, and I see elements of my work um, uh, not so much to the extreme. Uh, I'm I guess I'm really one of those. I'm working that middle ground. I'm working mostly with people who um, have self-identified as being uh, reasonable. <laughs> Uh, they may not be thinking about it uh, in that term. And I think a lot of the people, I never know exactly who I'm going to be working with because, you know, as I'm traveling around the country, often I'm playing for audiences that don't know why I'm coming. Um, you know, they're in a, uh, a music series or in a park or whatever. But for me, it's I think it's been a process. Uh, you know, I I get up in the morning because of music and possibility. And because I grew up in a a, a community where music provided a base of hope and also a, a, an outlet for all of the frustration. Uh, you know, the black community that I grew up in in Philadelphia early on, um, you know, was mostly uh, working class, middle class. Um, we were pretty poor, um, but all of that, in all of that, we were definitely part of the uh, community that Martin Luther King Jr., C.T. Vivian, all of them were tr trying to organize to fight for rights and to recognize our, our situation coming out of slavery. And, and what brought us out of that was song and community, uh, song, story, narrative. So I grew up with all of that um, sort of percolating. And it gave me a real base for kind of looking at the world, which I think was the point of, of those people. Uh, they knew that we were going to face a world that was more difficult than we could ever imagine. And they gave us some tools that we could use. Now, those tools didn't come into being or, or they weren't used by all people in my community uh, equally. Fortunately for me, uh, that combination and then meeting people like Pete Seeger and, and Richie Havens, Tom Paxton and all of those and, and then meeting civil rights workers like Chuck Neblett and, and Hollis Watkins and all. All those ingredients changed my focus on music from entertainment and emotion to what's the possibility that music can change the narrative. And then my work with the Kennedy Center showed me that as educators, we're always trying to work with the whole person to open them up to an opportunity to see something different. And of course, music, poetry, you know, the arts are a great way to do that. So over a course of time, I guess I was in this school, uh, this course, this, um, this community education project from a variety of different directions that then basically gave me enough energy to look at 
where I could make a difference. And the first thing I had to do was to figure out what my woundedness was in this process. And I think that's what I often talk to, you know, a lot of the folks that I play for or the when I do my show Deeper Than the Skin with my friend Greg Greenway. And we talk to white audiences about white supremacy and we talk about, you know, oppression and we, we talk about all these things. And when I talk to black audiences about getting engaged with voting rights and all of that, a lot of it is really the process of figuring out where you sit in the mix. I hear some of that here um, of people who have come alive with the knowledge of where they're hurt, where they're wounded, uh, so they can begin to get a sense of how they can get out of that space. And that's really what the spirituals are about. It's like identifying, mm -hmm. acknowledging that you're in the devastation, that you're in the pain, the in the frustration. Uh, so I then began to see ways in which my music could address that. And so I'm constantly inviting people into that space. To do that, I feel like I need to be in any moment as whole as I can possibly be. And I think I've shared with you a couple of times during the pandemic when, you know, with a Black Lives Matter rally or somewhere where I became aware that I wasn't quite as enlightened as I perhaps thought, uh, getting into a conflict with, you know, a verbal conflict with someone on the other side and, and feeling those, those emotions ratchet up. Uh, that's one of the places where music is really helpful. But it's yeah. also one of the places where I think community engagement is so important. You know, we pull each other along to live into our better angels and to keep yeah. each other accountable. So I think that for me is the thing I'm thinking about every day. Um, and, you know, when I'm on Facebook or Twitter, uh, I think very carefully about the messages that I'm putting out as juxtaposed against the music that I'm putting out. Uh, and in my writing, it's the same thing. I, I want to show people um, not only so much a better way, but I want to recall some historical truths about ways in which we have done it before and and ride that edge of uh, exposing the issue but not paralyzing the effort so it's a tricky balance and um, you know it's not always successful but I think for the most part the other thing is a lot of times you know it's just about me saying oops got it wrong uh, and yeah. and modeling that uh yeah it's not a perfect process so you know um I, you know i love he what i'm hearing today because uh, i mean you all doing the heavy <laughs> heavy mental lifting um <laughs> i i feel in so many ways it's not it's not like i'm not thinking about it and and not considering things i've read or know but i'm working more from an emotional frame that to to give people an opportunity to take a breath and consider their actions and consider the possibilities. Beautifully put. That that circles back to Andy's work so well that I gotta pull us back to this slide. Andy, there's a couple of things here. I mean, there's many things, and we'll talk now about solutions and practices to a certain extent. The, the book here is um, very practical in the sense that it's describing as I put here, the one of the questions I had for you was about something that Randy was just, Reggie was just talking about, which is, mm -hmm. can we have, have a, at the scale of culture, can we develop this immunity? Or what's the yeah. line between what the individual can do? You know, stopping and realizing, hey, I'm getting really angry now. Yeah, right. Which is more of a personal practice. 
that I've, you know, I think we all work at um, versus how does that, how does that become a community immunity tra uh, practice? Yeah. So, so it turns out that we can speak in scientifically respectable ways, both about mental immune systems and cultural immune systems, mm -hmm. um, because both minds and cultures have mechanisms for stopping or slowing the spread of bad ideas. Um, now, one of the things that compromises mental and cultural immunities is, is a culture war. So when a culture war breaks out, and people are driven into or uh, hunker bunker, you know, hunker down into their um, ideological uh, with their ideological tribes. Um, the nature of discourse changes. So when you're when you're trying to work something out with a friend, you use reasons in a collaborative way. You basically use reasons to draw a friend's attention to a relevant consideration, so that they can actually. Pay, um, take account of that consideration and make a wiser judgment for themselves. But when a culture war breaks out, um, partisans start using reasons as weapons. They start to use them to uh, defeat the other side and, and uh, uh, they try to win at the expense uh, of the people they're talking with. Now, when you start using reasons that way, you actually compromise your own immunity to bad ideas because uh, reasons and questions and doubts are the mind's antibodies. These are the things a, a healthy mind mobilizes to prevent bad ideas from infecting the mind. But when you're busy using reasons as weapons or using even using uh, doubts and questions and challenges as weapons, it turns out you're you're losing the ability to think clearly about which ideas are really right and which ideas are are really wrong or which ideas are really good and which ideas are really bad. So the ancient, you know, Buddhist masters who said, you know, partisanship is the will will prevent you from becoming wise, right? Don't don't go down a, a political rabbit hole or a um an a a partisanship rabbit hole because your very capacity to distinguish between right and wrong can be harmed in the process. And again, the new science of mental immunity is demonstrating this and lending support uh, to Amanda's lovely thesis um, that high conflict can, can bring out the worst in us, right? And we actually need to find ways to de-escalate high conflict and find mechanisms that um, allow us to resolve things uh, without triggering one another. Because when our minds start getting triggered by the things other things other people say, we're not at our best and we're far from our wisest selves. Peter, is that some of what the Difficult Conversations Lab has brought out? Sorry, yes. Um, yeah, there are several things that, that resonate with me in our work. Um, so, you know, it's what's interesting is, to so I, I do talk in my new book, I do talk about what I call a, commu a community immune system. And what I'm describing is uh, that there exists, you know, these 7,000 community-based organizations and these, you know, solutions journalism group and the folks in Congress and this and this, you know, there are, there is an infrastructure 
of health that is fighting against toxic polarization, that is trying to lower the, lower the temperature, and is trying to bring back reasonable discourse, and it exists in, in most communities around the country. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think we need to recognize that. We, we oftentimes don't see it as an, as an ecosystem, right? That there is a, 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 a broad set of, of actors working because we don't, because uh, at least in America, we don't see that as like an entity. You know, what I, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of uh, addiction in, because, you know, there, there's a paper that came out in science, not in science, but in a, a science journal a couple of months ago about uh, outrage, addiction to outrage. Um, in fact, there's, I think there's mm -hmm. a new book coming out on this. And it is, you know, that they, they look at fMRI research and they see that, uh, you know, outrage triggers the pleasure center in the brain like heroin does. So there's a, there's a, coral, you know, there's a parallel there. And we get addicted to that feeling of righteousness and damn them. And, you know, and the, so there's something about that that is, you know, we're hardwired for um, and is addictive. And, you know, the major internet platforms understand that, news media understands that, you know, they're tapping into these addictions because it then draws our attention, right? Um, right. And so in addiction, you know, so I worked with with addicts uh, in psychiatric hospitals for a few years, and um, you know, the only thing that helps addicts is AA. Is it, are these you know community based groups? Because yes, they can talk about their issues, but then they go back home, and they go back home, and the same thing happens, and they come back, right? So it's a chronic illness. But when they change people, places, and things, they move into a movement. Um, that questions all of these assumptions. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I've been thinking is that we, we really need an AA movement around depolarization today because um, in some ways it exists. We just don't see it as that. We don't understand it as that. You know, AA is a thing that you can go anywhere in the world almost and go to a meeting, right? Yeah. Because you know that there's something common there. I, I do think we have the the pieces of that. We just haven't put it together kind of conceptually to understand it as that. But we need that kind of movement, I think, to affect change. I also just want to say, you know, the I love the, your statement, reasons, questions, and doubt are the mind's antib antibodies. Because so much of what I, I, you know, I don't know if you know the John Patrick Shanley play Doubt, but it's a fantastic play because it is about... It's about the Catholic Church, and it's about sexual sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. You know, which are is a is a terrible, painful issue, right? But the way that John Patrick Shanley writes that play is, if you're in the audience, you are set up to believe that this priest is a pedophile, and you're you're all in on that, right? And you're certain that's true, and and the, but the play is called Doubt. And eventually there's doubt and you have to kind of deal with the fact that, oh, well, maybe it's not as clear as I thought. And even though it's a terrible thing, maybe he's just kidding, you know, so we have to. And 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 that's part of what happens right now. This uh, attraction to certainty and clear, moral clarity. We're, we're all in this and all over this. You know, we've been talking about vilification of the other group. There's vilification and purification of our in-groups, right? If you're not if you're not woke enough, if you're not, you know, following the party line, we are attacking our dissenters, you know, 
So there, this, these pathologies take place within the tribes, between the tribes, you know, it, it, they're everywhere. Yeah. But I love the idea of, of questions and doubt being the source of, uh, of an being an antibody because in these bridge building groups, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. having human contact with someone else and hearing their story and their reality and being heard by them introduces a sense of doubt and nuance yes. into what was certainty and over, you know, overly simplistic encounters and experiences. Hmm. Nice. So that, that, that circles back to Amanda too, that idea of seeing where these, these uh, practices are applicable. I guess Congress isn't going to have its own AA <laughs> addiction to our, our rage uh, sessions unless they're mandated. And I don't see that happening. Uh, and actually, Steve Brandt, there was a commenter earlier who made the point that, unfortunately, I mean, Congress is motivated to keep division alive by the money, the money they make from doing so. So these systemic counter counterbalance to some of these goals is really powerful. I don't, I don't know. And again, I think, Peter, you mentioned the, the news media, of course, and Amanda knows this as well as I do. You know, we're looking for conflict too often. We we're, we wait for the quote. I historically would wait for the quote where someone is basically making their hard crystalline point, and that would be my success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can as, I, as a, sorry. And can I just quickly jump in and say one thing about Congress? Just yeah, uh, yeah, of I course. Was a, I, I was had a book talk yesterday, and John Haight, Haight was in it, and he made a really interesting point because someone said, you know, politicians are so are, are mobilized and motivated for divisiveness, right? And he said, no, they're trapped by it. You know, that most Congress people you talk to, they don't like this. They don't get into it for this. You know, the vast majority of them are trying to solve problems in their communities and do good work, but they're trapped in this pathological system, right? So I think we have to be careful about how we think about them and what their motives are and what their reality is and how do you function. That's why so many of them are leaving. You know, they're just like, enough. This is crazy yeah. in here, right? So sorry, I'm sorry I jumped in, but I... No, no, no. That's yeah. every, everyone should feel free to jump into this. Uh, the uh, the wild rumpus has begun. As, uh, <laughs> that, that book. Um, we have another guest coming on shortly. Isaac Grossoff, who's a student at Carnegie Mellon uh, and involved with the humanism, the humanism movement or whatever. There, maybe uh, Andy, if you could just explain humanism before that. Sure. So. Uh... At Carnegie Mellon, we have both a humanism initiative, and I direct that, and a student group called the Humanist League. And we work together to promote uh, dialogue on some of the most divisive issues facing humanity. So it's kind of like a philosophy club, but it's also one where we actually seek out different points of view and try to uh, encourage uh, dialogue over dogma. Uh, and Isaac here is the president of the Humanist League. He's done a marvelous job of, of leading our student group, especially through these difficult COVID distanced times. But um, I'd love to get his, his, his take on it as well. Hi. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you here. Um, and we, just by the feel of what I was reading on the website earlier, you know, we do need a big dose of humanism <laughs> going <laughs> forward. Uh, so, Isaac, what's your life like as it relates to these questions that we're all pursuing here? Sure. So, I'm a I'm a graduate student at, at 
Carnegie Mellon in theoretical computer science. One thing Humanist League really helps me with is being able to meet people and discuss in a in a you know perspective of like mutual learning and growth with people who come from very different backgrounds and have very different perspectives than me. So we have uh, weekly discussion meetings throughout the year and we'll tackle really big topics. We've tackled, we had a meeting about abortion that was really interesting and was really successful, I think. We've had, um, I think our next one is uh, later today. It's gonna be about standards of acceptable speech, which uh, I think relates to some of these topics we've been talking about. Right. And something this really helps with is I think the vast majority of the time when people are arguing against a position, they've never met somebody and talked with them for like an hour who had the opposite position. And I know an hour isn't a huge amount of time in the perspective of our lives, but in the perspective of like, you know, learning to take a, take a, a person with a different opinion seriously, it can really make a big difference. Absolutely. Uh, Andy, did you have a just just given a, uh, a, a thumbs up? Uh, yeah. Thumbs up, yeah. Reggie, be, uh, we're, we're going to get to Amanda in a second because she's going to have to cut out at the end of the hour. But Reggie, could you give that little thumbnail sketch of what happened to you on that town green up in uh, I think it was Cobbleskill? <laughs> Cobbleskill, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, some folks in the area started a Black Lives Matter rally. Um, that was weekly and met on the town green in Cobleskill, which is about uh, 20 minutes from my house. Uh, Cobleskill, upstate, it's a very conservative, very uh, very reactionary area, very Trump supporting. Um, when I moved there, the Democrats uh, in the area didn't even have a primary because uh, it would, they were just so overwhelmed. I went to vote and they, they, they couldn't find my name on the list and they said, oh, uh, are you a Republican or independent? Yeah, I told them I was a Democrat and they said, oh, you, you don't have a primary. <laughs> uh, things have changed, however. Uh, so uh, I went to the first rally and uh, mostly, you know, mostly white folks because there aren't a lot of people of color living in the area. I've lived there for 31 years. And I told the folks who, who started it, I wasn't going to show up every week because if I show up, it changes the conversation. And they agreed that it really it had to be white people talking to white people, modeling something for, for white people. So, but something happened the one week uh, uh some of the students from the nearby suny came and uh, and there was some conflict with people driving by and yelling things and the students kind of took the bait and they yelled back so i went over the next week uh just to meet the students and uh, and just to see if i could be helpful and uh, i got there and as it happened on this particular week uh our group met which was about 20 25 people and we had our signs of love and peace and uh, and on the end of the park, a Trump group, because the Trump headquarters was right across the street. <laughs> so there were about 40 of them, and they had a big flag, and they had the whole thing. And for the most part, during uh, the few hours that we were there, we just remained distant. Every now and then, some chant or something would break out, or somebody would drive by and yell something, and both groups would react. But we didn't have a lot of interaction with each other, except I kept hearing this one guy who kept yelling about gas prices and how you know, if Biden got elected, they were going to go to $5 a gallon and whatever. And one of our people had gone down, one of the young women had gone down and talked to the Trump people. And she came back and she, she just said, you know, we have to try to talk to them. And on that day, I didn't really feel like engaging. I just wanted to be a presence. But 
This guy kept yelling, and I finally said to myself, engage. So I walked over to him, and, uh, and I just said, you know, so what's this about $5 a gallon? And he looked at me, and he said, you don't belong over here. You stay over there. <laughs> you guys, we're, we're keeping our distance. We're being, you know, respectful. And I said, I, I don't want to stay over there. I want to talk to you. And, uh, and so we began talking about the gas prices and a couple of other things. And then he said a couple of things. I said a couple of things. And soon it was escalating. And, and some of my friends who were there uh, also started to escalate. Um, and so I, I asked them just to leave us alone. And, uh, and I continued. Well, at one point, he and I were on some point and just going at it and, and I just could feel myself completely losing control. And I thought, this is not why you came out here. <laughs> so, and I couldn't figure out how to disengage because now we were in and there were a couple of his, you know, Trump supporting friends who were nearby and they were sort of egging him on. And finally, in the midst of one exchange, this wonderful thing happened. And I just said to him, hi, my name is Reggie. And he looked at me and he said, what? <laughs> and I said, my name is Reggie. And he said, oh, I'm Ed. And I said, good to meet you, Ed. And he said, yeah, good to meet you too. And then that breath gave us an opportunity to sort of settle. And then I said, look, I, you know, I hear you, you, you were saying you're a veteran and you said you were a truck driver. I'm a musician. I travel around the country. We're probably buying gas at the same rate. And, and he said, yeah, that's probably true. And so we started talking about gas prices and having to, you know, keep our vehicles fueled and, and it gave us some place to go. And, and then the other folks fell away and we actually talked for a half an hour. And now each of us were trying to find points <laughs> to agree yeah. on. And it was hard, you know, uh, but I finally said to him, look, I know that whatever I say here to you today is not going to change how you vote or, or maybe even how you think. But at least at least and he said, yeah, at least we're talking to each other. And I said, you know, maybe the next time we meet, it's a small community in the supermarket or wherever we can just say hi and start from a different place. And and then after a while, I, I left. But as I left, I drove by the spot where they were. And he was watching my car and he waved. And I thought, wow. <laughs> you know, and I still felt to myself, why couldn't you have de-escalated sooner? But, you know, it just made me remember how hard it is. And, you know, and, you know, for myself and, and for two of my friends who were also musicians, I said to them in the car as we left, we sing about this stuff all the time. And we sing about making a difference and we sing these songs about reaching out and, and you know, all these platitudes. And they're not platitudes because I really believe them. But I said, that's where the rubber hits, hits the road. You know, we're not singing to an audience that is, you know, as one woman said, I could listen to you sing all day, you know, but now you have to start talking about stuff. <laughs> uh, but that day, it was a it was a wake up call for me again to recommit myself to enter these spaces with a different attitude about, you know, where my buttons are. Oh, Andy, you're muted, I think. Sorry about that. Reggie, that's a marvelous story. I love that. And um, I actually think it illustrates something really interesting. In this digital age, we tend to think of communication as a matter of one of us sending out signals and the other person hearing the signals and internalizing it in some fashion as though real communication was just kind of a one-way push, information push operation. 
real communication, deep primordial communication, actually has a very different internal aspect. Um, the word communication comes from, I forget if it's ancient Greek or ancient Latin, I think maybe Latin, and it means to dwell together. The co means together and the uh, muni in, mu in communication means to dwell, like municipality, right? So what the ancients understood is that deep communication, the kind of communication that really builds a meeting of the minds, that involves bringing attention to the same point and dwelling together on the same thing so that you're building shared understanding. And we keep forgetting that that's what communication really is and ought to be at a fundamental level. And I love the way Reggie's resetting of that conversation gave it a chance gave that conversation a chance to realize the, the real potential of conversation. And if we could just do that with all of our conversations, man, we could change the world fast. Yeah, that's so wonderful. Uh, that, that idea of a practice, uh, developing that capacity. It reminds me of Dan Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. It's hard to think slow. It's hard to react. We react fast. We, uh, Jaron, Ron, Jaron Lanier's book on getting off the internet which I don't agree with, has this whole section on how the whole system is exploiting our fast brain. You know, it's taking you down and then it scrolls. So you go down and down and down and there's no bottom. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> but I, I want to give Amanda a little bit of a, at least a brief opportunity for last word, because I think Amanda, you got to drop right off right at the hour. So uh, where does this take you? This reminds me of one of my favorite quotes is, the biggest mistake in communication is thinking it happened. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that we have this illusion of communication where we think, and right now it feels like the, the sort of unforced error over and over again, and I make it all the time, I'm trying to get better, is, is believing that persuasion is done through direct argumentation. Like that's just not how it works. And often I feel like there should be a warning when you open up Twitter or Facebook, <laughs> That's not how you persuade people, you know? That's just not how it works. Uh, I wish it did, you know? That would be a lot easier um, <laughs> in some ways, but it's not how it works. In fact, I was just reading this really cool article by um, the, the, one of the people who started motivational interviewing. I don't know if you all have heard of this, but it's something that's used a lot in addiction Sorry. counseling to come back to that. And uh, it's the sort of foundational paper for that that came out in the 80s. And he, uh, William Miller, I think it was, been working with, alcoholics for a very long time. And what he found is direct argument doesn't work. And it was super obvious and everyone knew it and the science had proven it. And this was in the eighties. And I was like, <laughs> and so what uh, he started developing is this really cool technique um, called motivational interviewing, which I've been trying to learn from as a, as a journalist, but it's, it's sort of helping people surface their own deeper internal inconsistencies and, and doubts, right? Um, and, and as opposed to like hammering them uh, with what you want them to say. But I love that story, Reggie. And I think, you know, that ability to stop and reset in, in a conflict like that with emotion is something that we all need to get better at. And I don't know if you have how you did that right in the moment. Um, but <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's aspirational um, for all of us. And, and to just, if you can just interrupt, like to Peter's work, it's a system, right? And if you can just jar it, just shake it a little bit, you don't know what's gonna happen, right? But you interrupted that, that 
spiral that you were both in and it took him it, it made him pause the last thing i'll say because it reminds me of this great story uh that i was told the other day you know the best part of my job is i get to interview people who are a lot wiser than i am and uh, i was interviewing a um one of the many conflict experts i've come to rely on and i asked him this was uh his name on twitter i highly recommend following him is bus driver dan he's been driving a public transit bus in portland oregon for 15 years and you can imagine there's a lot of conflict every day usually between the passengers but it's been a tough year in portland as it has in many places uh so i asked him you know how do you deal with sudden conflagrations on the bus and he you know he said a lot of really interesting things which i've written about elsewhere but the thing i want to share now that reminds me of what reggie said is he has a formula which is it's easier when you have a formula right because if there's stress it's very hard to think I mean, it's impossible to think so a formula is good and his formula is honest question honest question honest question choice so it's a four-step approach to intervene huh. So he'll get on the PA and say, what are you guys doing? If the two people are fighting, like he genuinely wants to know, uh, which requires the authentic sort of um, Zen ability to really want to know. <laughs> there he is. Great. Thank you. Um, and, and then he says, do you know what, you know what happens if you, if you keep doing that? And so he asks a series of genuine questions and then he gives them a choice um, and, and doesn't always work, but it works a lot better than, 99% of other options. So um, it, it sort of reminds me of that reset, right? When you get people to stop, what he says is if you can get them talking and thinking, then oxygen will flow to the rest of their brain um, and better things can happen. So anyway, I'm sorry That's I have another cool. call I have to jump on, but thank you all mm -hmm. for letting me join you. And uh, I look forward to watching the rest in the, in the recording. That's great. great. I'll, have to get, I'll have to get bus driver Dan on the show. You, yes, absolutely. No, wisdom hard earned is the is the best wisdom of all. That's pretty cool. Uh, let me go back to uh, I had a, I had some. Um, thank you so much, uh, Amanda, for being here. Uh, her book is a really important addition to this uh, landscape and her her work. She also wrote this fantastic piece for journalists on complicating the narrative on how to actually change the way you interview people. Uh, as a way to get beyond the dueling quotes uh, norm of journalism. Just fantastic work. Um, I wanted to show something. I, I pulled together some questions as I was reading the books and uh, hold on. So just take a second. And if uh, hopefully you can all stay for a few more minutes. If you can't, can't just uh, let me know. Uh, here it is. You'll see here. Um, these are things I'd written down earlier before the show, and they, they kind of resonate now. Pinch points seems to come up a lot. You know, we all have those pinch points where, and they lead to uh, paths of, of no return. You know, that difference between having an argument that ex escalates and one that might de-escalate and lead to some new connectivity, like Reggie was describing, is real. And that's at the scale of the family, it's the scale of Congress. Does that seem like a common element for, for everyone? The other thing is so much of this work is internal. As, as uh, Andy said so powerfully there, and by the way, I, when I lecture, I often point to the dictionary definition of communication, which is sharing, <laughs> sharing information. It's not me badgering you. Mm -hmm. So that resonates a lot with me. And then um, on the downside of all this, um, we are really aligned in ways that 
it's almost like a perfect storm of technologies and the what Peter was talking about that 50 years of tracks toward separateness. Yeah. So Andy, I, I could pick up on this, on that if you like. Yeah. Um, and to connect it with what Amanda was saying, um, bus driver Dan's what three honest questions uh, is so I think what in, in saying that that's the way to deescalate, you know, he, he's channeling a tradition that goes all the way back to Socrates because Socrates, one of my philosophical heroes, he would basically use clarifying questions to slow conversation down, reduce the temperature and shed light where the conversation was formerly generating heat. And in the process of doing this, a lot of times people actually stop to think and realize that they probably shouldn't run around pronouncing things with quite the zeal that they, they, thought they should, right? Mm -hmm. So you learn a little bit of humility if you actually take the time to ask yourself and each other clarifying questions. Um, and there's a marvelous story of um, uh, Daryl Davis is a black blues musician who actually deconverted KK Ku Klux Klansmen by basically listening to them and being patient enough so that they could hear them what so they could hear what they themselves were saying, which was utter white supremacist nonsense. But because these these um, Klansmen didn't make time in their lives to actually listen even to their own thoughts, they were buying all kinds buying into all kinds of, of mind parasites. And so just by giving them a space to, I think D Davis is kind of is an intuitive motivational interviewer. He, he's mm. he asks clarifying questions and he gives you a chance to just see see for yourself the way you sound <laughs> and a lot of times that'll make you stop and think again and um it's a powerful technique and we need to get back to it in our culture culture right now but again the roots of wisdom on this go go back thousands of years so peter and i want to get to isaac um peter um you you have like a you have a game plan right now you you're 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 highly motivated to spread the <laughs> the gospel of depolarization, um, yeah. where does this take you? Well, I, I was going to pick up on the, the the ideas of clarifying questions and Socrates and, and um, even Reggie's story, because um, I, I tell the story in the in the book um, about uh, about two years ago or so. I was invited via Twitter to go to a, like a pop up meeting in Midtown Manhattan on uh, polarization on the internet. And so I went and had I'd never been invited like that before. I didn't know what this was. I showed up at noon on a, in a snowstorm on a Thursday. And um, it was a group of about 12 people. And it was an interesting group because there were executives from Jigsaw and Google, one of the co-founders of Facebook and an executive Facebook, you know, tech journalists, and, you know, and then a couple of academics like me. and. The convener wrote up on a whiteboard, what kind of dialogue should we be having uh, online to promote a healthy virtual society? And I said, well, what do you mean by dialogue? And then there was, of course, silence. And, um, and I said, because in, in my world, we often use the term dialogue when we mean debate, right? the way we dialogue and engage is we debate, right? So you make a 
particularly around politics. You make a statement, I challenge you, I listen to your story, but I'm looking for flaws in your argument so that I can weaponize it and come back and say, aha, you're wrong and I'm right. So debate is a game uh, that we play to win an argument, right? It is ultimately about winning an argument. And it's a it, it, it triggers brain processes that are more closed processes and more strategic in that direction. Dialogue is the opposite in my world. In, in the world of peacemaking and peace building, Dialogue is a process of opening and discovery, right? It is a process where you not only do you learn about them and their story and what's important to them and what moves them and how they came here, not only do you learn about the issues that are much more complicated than the positions we're taking, but you also learn and discover your own, you know, story and you learn about yourself, right? If you're really in that space. What I said is, you know, dialogue is is more like you see in AA meetings or in like Quaker meetings where people stand up and, you know, share that which is God within them, you know? So yeah. it's it's not a process of persuasion. It is a process of opening and it's the opposite, but it's very un-American, you know, trained in high school as a debater. We yeah. got debate in politics. We got debate in law and order in our legal system everywhere. It is about debate. We think that's the superior form of communication and we're all hardwired at this. Well, we're, we're socialized, strongly socialized to do that. Um, but there's no discovery in that. And part right. of what happened when Reggie said, my name's, my name's Reggie. And he said, oh, my name's Ed. You learn something, you know, and it changes the channel to some degree, right? Mm -hmm. But I have to say, in this meeting I was at in Midtown, um, when I en ended that de definition of dialogue versus debate, there was another period of silence. And then this co-founder of Facebook said, oh, well, if that's dialogue, then there are no major platforms that promote dialogue. The major platforms on the internet are about uh, right. social comparison, competition, contention, challenge, and being as provocative as you can. That's the coin of the realm. That's the important currency. And that's the business model, because that kind of process, that kind of competitive game is addictive, right? And he said, other than Zoom or spaces like this, where you can open up and discover, um, most of the major platforms business model is the opposite. And that, and everybody kind of nodded and said, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know? And I thought, uh oh, you know, so, so in other words, this, vastly escalating information and media and contact ecosystem that we have called social media is really organized around pitting us against each other, right? So when Zuckerberg says Facebook is about creating, you know, new communities, it's like, yeah, but what kind of communities, you know, like what's the nature of that? So again, I, 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 I think that distinction is important of between dialogue and debate. I think it's misunderstood. Um, and I think some folks have more of a natural capacity to open up and unpack and help us surface our assumptions. Um, but most of us in this country are trained in the opposite direction. Yeah, and my, cam my camera has malfunctioned, but I'm still here. That's okay, we like your picture. Yeah, that's, this is happening more. I think the our information systems are starting to crack under all of the uh, the strain of the last fifteen months of this stuff. Um, but I, I am still here, um, I, Isaac. As the youngest among us, sure. Do you do you despair when you 
look at the systems through which most communication is happening and in the context of what would need to happen? So I, I don't despair about almost anything. I'm, I'm a bit of an optimist that way. Good. When I think about the, the, the communication platforms that promote this sort of dialogue, I think back to the ones I used more when I was, you know, a, a teenager or even younger. And I use things like, you know, the old school forums, like the BB, uh, the PHP boards or IRC or something like that. Right. And what's notable about these is they're niche and they're moderated, right? It's, but it's not particularly self, they weren't particularly self-selected. So you'd meet people with very different beliefs than you. But if people went in and tried to make arguments over and over and over again, they'd, they'd just be pulled aside by a moderator and be like, that's not how we do it around here. Because that's not fun. Nobody shows up to a forum or an IRC to launch into an argument every day. And also, they weren't monetized, right? They were run by people who were looking for a community. They weren't right, run by people right. who were trying to make money off of ads. Um, hmm. If they had any ads, it was just to like have enough money to keep them going. But usually there was nothing at all. So I think there are models from our history about this. And also, I think a big part of the problem comes from how our modern technological systems measure success, right? They measure success in terms of number of minutes that people look at my ads or number of minutes people spend on my platform. Right. But that doesn't answer the question of like, is it the case that if you see an ad, your likeliness of being receptive of it is dependent on your emotional state? Like if you're, incredibly angry about a political thing. Is that a conducive environment to like buying a car or something? I don't know what these ads are, are trying to sell. I always ad block them. But like the most effective ads I've ever seen were on some of the least divisive content. They were recommendations by the people who were making the content and had used it and were um, advocating it. And there's no reason to believe that this hyper divisiveness would be conducive to being, oh, you're a trustworthy person who I can take a recommendation from. So hey, Isaac, can I build on that? that? That's a beautiful observation. That suggests that there might even be a market niche out there for a, a dialogue-based social media platform that actually puts people into a positive frame of mind and then tries to sell them stuff. Right. And, <laughs> right. and I'm not too keen on that last step, but, but if it can, uh, uh, give Facebook and Twitter runs for their money. Uh, that's a beautiful idea. Isaac, you're a technologist. You can design this, can't you? But let me say, let me say one thing. That's in, what you've just described is what, um, like the Democrats tried to do with canvassing in in uh, politics. So canvassing is a process in politics of not going up and saying, you know, who do you vote for? Will you vote for my candidate? It's about asking questions and listening, engaging in conversation but it's weaponized to eventually persuade them to vote for my, my politician. And I, I think that's, it, it distorts the, the, the beauty and the value and the power of dialogue of listening and really listening and, be, and hearing the other and it, it weaponizes it. So I, 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 I do go back to the economic, the problems with the economic basis of all of this because it will then distorts these things and they become, you know, weapons to sell things. Fair oh point. Yeah. I, I guess the, the point I'm really making is that like selling things isn't the enemy, right? 
um, making people angry or emotional so they'll stay on the platform so they'll buy things is the enemy, right? We've we've sold things for far longer than we've had the internet. It's not the only model of selling things. Hmm. This is true, and I do see signs. You know, Twitter did. Um, I was trying to kind of, I was going to almost try to demonstrate this, but I couldn't figure out how to make it happen. You know, they now have that tool where if you start to retweet something before you've read it, it says, "Have you might want to read the article first. <laughs> so, so there actually is an app for that. And, and it, I find it useful. There have been several times when it, it prompted me to pause and <laughs> before I click, you know, and I, I teach this in social media all the time. And so it, I, I do feel there might be a use for technology and technologists in designing an environment that not only diffuses the retweet function, and it's just, it's not like it mandating. Hey, hey Andy, I just, I mean, I, I love your suggestion here. And imagine small tweaks to social media platforms that basically just nudge people gently in the direction of slow thinking, what Kahneman right. called slow thinking rather than fast thinking, right? right. Um, and you're not infringing on somebody's right to free speech if you make them wait 30 seconds before they click post or before they right. click retweet or whatever. Um, so there may be ways, just very gentle nudges that can sh help shift us from, I don't know, uh, you know, com a, a combative to a more conciliatory or from a fast thinking to a slow thinking or from a zero sum to a non-zero sum uh, mindset. And we need uh, interface designers who can help use these nudges to to bring us back to dialogue and constructive uh, exchange. One of the groups that's done this more effectively is Wikipedia. Um, there was uh, research, and it's back to kind of Isaac's point, that Wikipedia, um, A, will throw you off if you get too vitriolic. B, so there are rules and they are monitored. But what they find is that if the people that engage in contributing content, say around political issues, um, actually are very diverse and coming at it from very different perspectives, the quality of the contributions are much higher. So there was a recent study that showed that on Wikipedia, because it doesn't spiral into, you know, a mud wrestling, you know, parade, it, 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 it is really trying to synthesize those ideas to reach a higher level of understanding. Hmm. So that's one example of how it can work. And, and maybe, maybe it's, no, it's no accident that Wikipedia is largely functioning amid all the noise and distraction and design for the worst part of us. There is a cathedral being built. It's mm. a cathedral of understanding, of knowledge. It's, it's not perfect. Uh, we did a session on here recently with uh, Alex Stinson, who's a Wikipedia. He's one of their community curators, basically. And it was so interesting to see how he's trying to foster that capacity around climate entries. He was specifically looking at the climate world on Wikipedia. Right. This has been fantastic discussion. Uh, there also is the Center for Humane Technology, which you probably, some of you know about. It's sort of, you know, it's like, it's kind of like this is to technology what so Solutions Journalism Network is to journalism. It's a small entity and a giant universe, mostly populated <laughs> by people who were probably at that meeting that Peter went to. But it's, it shows me, again, there are signs of, of hope, I think, around us. Um, we probably should call this uh, call an end to this discussion. I do feel like it's just the beginning of a discussion. And maybe we can reconvene on some of these questions. I could bring in 
someone from the Center for Humane Technology or someone from Twitter, perhaps. And and we could see where we can go to convene around the, the questions of scale and yeah. cross-disciplinary work that has, has to happen. Thanks so much, uh, Andy Norman from Carnegie Mellon for your book on how to develop mental immunity, which I is happy to have an actual physical copy. A rarity these days, although I do have plenty of books back behind me. Thank and, you, Andy. Uh, and Peter Coleman, good luck with The Way Out. And I think- I have a, I have a physical copy here. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Isaac, uh, good luck with all the, the, the humanist, humanism work you're doing at Carnegie Mellon and you're programming your technology work. And Reggie, I was hoping you might close us out with a little song. I know your wrist is still broken or mending. Uh, you know, I, I, you and I play and sing together many times every few months. And um, beautiful what's, gathering. <laughs> what's on your musical mind to close out this wacky session? Well, you know, I, I was thinking of uh, my song, um, Windows of the Heart, you know, mm. um, which um, usually I have my guitar to frame. But, um, um, you know, it's this is this has been a really um, fulfilling and nurturing conversation. And um, I think about the uh, the personal commitment that, um, you know, some of what I do on Facebook is what I do in my sets as I'm performing, you know, my sets are built as an invitation, um, as a, 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 an opportunity to ask people or actually to invite them to slow down and, uh, and to have some sense that they can release whatever it is. And then eventually there's some information exchange, but always with the idea that I have no idea where people in my you know, my audiences are, are politically or emotionally or religiously or whatever. And I'm not interested in finding out. I'm interested in preparing an opportunity, an atmosphere where we can, where they feel safe, really. And, um, and I think on Facebook, I try to do the same. But at any rate, this song um, came from an interaction that was not safe and, and enjoyable. Um, I was helping to lead a, a, a race workshop and the per one of the people who hired me uh, decided in the middle of it to sabotage the whole thing. <laughs> oh. And uh, and we ended up uh, on top of a mountain facing each other. And um, it goes like this. We sit alone together, each from our different worlds, suspicious of each other, position flags unfurled. So much lies broken between us, lines of connection down, standing in ruins of pain and mistrust, searching for common ground. So we stumble through our points of view, logic falls apart. In that moment of confusion, we see a place to start through the windows of the heart. We sit in silence and wonder, where do we go from here? Frustration dragging us under, no resolution clear. We feel the anger, this desperation to turn this world around. Each of our faces a mirror, searching for common ground. 
So we lower our defenses, watch them fall apart. In that moment of confusion, we see a place to start through the windows of the heart. So we lower our defenses, watch them fall apart. In that moment of communion, we see a place to start through the windows of the heart. Wow. wow. Reggie, that was beautiful. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you again, Reggie. Absolutely. <laughs> we had we had a great we had a great little live session at David and, and Mays the other day. Oh let's, wow. Let's do it again. Get get you down to Beacon, New York. So this has been a very special edition of Sustain What, uh, which is a question and a conversation. And the focus is on pathways to sanity and progress in times of consequential complexity. And I'm here at the, at, through the graces of the Earth Institute and Climate School at Columbia University. Great to have this collection of people today um, who are questers and on journeys of uh, discovery and, and spreading some really wise practices going forward. So thanks again, uh, Andy Norman, uh, Isaac, and Peter Coleman, and Reggie, and of course, Amanda Ripley earlier for being part of this. Uh, as soon as we're done, you can share this on the various platforms it's been streaming on. And uh, the links are there. Um, more sessions to come. And have a good day wherever you are. And uh, try to pause before you click. and. Listen before you speak. Those are those are two simple practices. So thanks again to everybody for being here today. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sustain What, a production of the Initiative on Communication and Sustainability at Columbia University's Climate School. If you like, send your feedback or ideas for future shows to j.mp slash sustainwhatfeedback. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and build a better world. Mm -hmm.